Hey, Bettys. Welcome to the Better Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Stephanie. It is geeky magic time where I step away from the interviews and just talk to you. It's just going to be me and you today. And these episodes, I'm going to bring you personal insights, frequently asked questions, topic du jour in a more condensed, quick, and actionable way. I go hard on the geek, wrap it up with sprinkles and magic for you to do and be better. Hey, hey, Bettys, welcome back to another episode of Geeky Magic. Today, we're talking about testosterone and women. I get a lot of questions about how to ease perimenopause and menopause symptoms. And here's a really simple answer for you. Take a good mineral supplement. Your body loses a ton of minerals as you transition through perimenopause and menopause. And mineral deficiencies make a lot of the common symptoms worse. For example, if you're struggling with poor sleep, fatigue, joint pain, hot flashes, or any other side effects that are wearing you down, you might think about giving Beam Minerals a try. Their full-spectrum mineral supplement contains every single mineral that you lose during perimenopause and menopause, and there is a meaningful dose here with close to 100% bioavailability. All you have to do is take a shot of liquid every morning to replenish your mineral stores and ease the symptoms that you might be experiencing. Beam minerals just taste like water and you'll feel the difference within a few days. Head over to beamminerals.com and use the code BETTER for 20% off. A little bit controversial, actually, to talk about testosterone in women. Um, not exactly sure why, but we're going to talk about what happens when testosterone goes awry, specifically when it is too much. There's too much T, too much testosterone in the female body, what can happen to it. And we're going to really double click today on polycystic uh, ovary syndrome or ovarian syndrome, depending on where in the world you are and how you like to pronounce it. But PCOS is a inflammatory endocrine disorder, too much androgens. So androgens are uh, a class of hormones, testosterone being one of them. You have endosanodione, you have dihydrotestosterone, DHEA as well. Um, but basically PCOS and high testosterone in a woman is... Uh, characterized by high androgens, usually testosterone. And then we also see some other things like elevated luteinizing hormone. Now that's not in all cases, but when LH is high, if you go back to my menstrual masterclass, you'll know that luteinizing hormone is essential to help the release of the egg from the mature follicle. So if you don't, if you already have an elevated LH through the follicular phase, uh, you won't have a really big differentiation. LH, there's basically what is known as a luteinizing hormone surge. Um, and this happens after we see a surge of estradiol in the end of week one, beginning of week two in that pre-ovulatory week. And then after we see that estradiol surge, we will see a luteinizing uh, hormone surge. And this is where uh, we, we actually need that surge in order for the egg to be released from the follicle. So PCOS or too much testosterone in the female body, you will already have an elevated level of LH, which will prevent the surge to have its effect on that follicle. And of course, when we're thinking about PCOS, uh, it prevents the ovarian follicle from reaching ovulation, which is 
if you've known me in my work for a minute, you'll know that I often talk about this idea that the main point of your menstrual cycle is ovulation. And because we are preventing the follicle from reaching ovulation, that release, that burst of the egg from the follicle, it will cause delays in ovulation that can then cause irregular periods or menstrual cycles or even non-existent periods as well, which can be really frustrating if you are a woman who A, wants to optimize for her fertility, which I believe are all women, But in that subset, if you are a woman who wants to get pregnant, you need to be able to track when you have ovulated because this is going to obviously predict your likelihood or your success of being able to get pregnant. And we know that the egg lives, once it's been released, somewhere between... 40, uh, pardon me, four to 24 hours. So we're talking about a mere hours that you have in your cycle to get pregnant. So it is really important to be able to time this. And PCOS is no joke. It affects over a hundred million, that's with an M, hundred million women worldwide. So this is the most common endocrine disorder in women, in re, in the, in, um, women of, in reproductive age, and it is the leading cause of ovulatory infertility. So it is very important for us to get a handle on this, where we see this testosteroneization of our beautiful women. And just because I'm a word nerd, you know, you know, y'all know me, like I love to uh, look at the meanings of things. The, the, the label of PCOS is a little bit of a misnomer, polycystic uh, ovary syndrome, because not all women have cysts uh, on their ovaries. So about 20% of women who do not meet the criteria for PCOS have cysts. And about 30% of women who do have PCOS don't have cysts. So where we might see 70% of women who meet the criteria for PCOS have cysts, 30% don't, right? And even more accurately, the word cyst sort of denotes this like pustule, right? Or this kind of acne breakout. Like I have, you know, cysts, like cystic acne, but they're actually not cysts. They're follicles that have not gone through the full maturation process. So a couple of symptoms of PCOS. If you are listening and you feel like maybe you have something going on, you're not quite sure, here are some clues um, and typical common symptoms that, um, that go hand in hand with PCOS. Now, this is not an exhaustive list. It's also not diagnostic. You do need to pair clinical symptoms with lab work, which we're going to talk about. And then ideally, you also want to get an ultrasound as well. But some common symptoms will include, like one of them I already mentioned, uh, irregular or absent um, ovulation, uh, fertility issues, so either trouble getting getting pregnant or staying pregnant. Insulin resistance. Uh, This is a really important one. We're going to talk a little bit about how PCOS really does, uh, a certain classification of PCOS really does have its roots in hyperinsulinemia or elevated insulin levels. 
Uh, you may, will also see elevated androgens, as I've mentioned. Um, you can also have mid-cycle pain. So this is something called Mittelsmerch, uh, German in the uh, or the the word origin. Mittel meaning middle, smirch meaning pain. So pain in the middle, Mittelsmerch. So mid-cycle pain. You can also, you might also notice uh, excessively oily skin, acne, uh, hair growth, uh, particularly around the, uh, the chin and the beard area. Now I will say, um, I, I want to be culturally sensitive here because I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be real with y'all right now. I, my, as you may know, my, uh, ethnic background is Portuguese and Lebanese. So part Portuguese, part Lebanese. So part Middle Eastern, part Mediterranean. And let me just tell you that I don't have PCOS, but I have the chin hairs, right? So, um, we, uh, like, I, I remember when I first, um, did a genetics test. It was with sort of this like, you know, coffee table, it was like 23 and me. I did like my first genetics test. And one of the things that it came, uh, you know, it, it came back. One of the results was, oh, well, you're very likely to have a unibrow. It's like, bitch, I don't need you to tell me that. Like, I already know that. That is why I tweeze like three times a week. So uh, I do want to have some, I do want to add in a layer for my clinicians. I know there's a lot of clinicians that listen to this, to this podcast, particularly uh, clinicians who deal with female uh, hormones and optimization. We want to be culturally sensitive. If you have a Middle Eastern woman, you have a Mediterranean woman, uh, it's very likely that she's already dealing with chin hairs. She, you know, maybe she's dealing with thicker hairs, but we want to, uh, that doesn't mean that she has PCOS. It just means that she's hairy, you know, because that's what our ancestors, uh, you know, and that's what our sort of genes are, um, uh, are coding for. So I just wanted to, you know, make that little, uh, make that little comment because, um, you know, women of Middle Eastern descent particularly uh, will know uh, this to be true that, you know, you tweeze or you get threading on your eyebrows and like you need to do like you it's upkeep. Like it's not like it's, you know, you do it once, then you can come back in two weeks. It's like you got to do it. You got to be on that stuff. So just just a little qualifier there. Um all, when we're talking about uh, hair, um, you know, like I mentioned, hair growth on the on the chin, some cultural, um, you know, input there that is required. Uh, but what is not, uh, what is more in line with PCOS is hair maybe around the chest area, hair on the back, or even loss of hair, sort of that male pattern baldness, where we might see thinning in the temple area. Um, that would be more in line with, aligned with uh, more clinical, the clinical presentation of PCOS. Other things that women will complain to you about unwanted weight gain or this inability to lose weight. Um, sometimes there's obesity, uh, more often than not, there's obesity, but it's not a qualifier. You can be, you can be thin or of a normal BMI and also still have polycystic ovary syndrome. And then I will also say, um, that your patient, depending on, or you may, uh, if you if you are the patient, also may notice things like a susceptibility to anxiety and depression. We often don't 
put that together in the clinical picture of PCOS. We're always really concerned with the uh, reproductive function aspect of things. Um, but we, women with PCOS tend to have more anxiety. They tend to be more depressed and they also tend to, of course, they tend to have more sexual dysfunction as well. But what we know is that depression, anxiety, mental issues, we often don't correlate those to our physiology. We still separate brain and body. So just wanted to also um, make sure that you might be screening your patients. Maybe you're giving them a DAS, the depression, anxiety, and stress um, score, or you're doing other subjective measures where you're looking for changes in their anxiety and their depression. And of course, as you might imagine, uh, because it's so multifactorial, because it affects so many systems in the body, that treating PCOS can feel a little bit like playing whack-a-mole, right? It can feel like, you know, if you're just looking at one symptom, you may see that improve and then, but you're not really treating the whole person. So let's talk a little bit about what causes it. And of course, in order to do that, we need to talk a little bit about testosterone in women, um, as I mentioned uh, in my conversation with Dr. Sarah Gottfried, we often ascribe estrogen. We often say, well, estrogen is kind of the phenotypically female hormone in the body. And of course it is. We have more estrogen than our male counterparts. But testosterone is the most abundant, the most abundant sex hormone um, in women. And even though that's a shocker, <laughs> it's true. Um, and testosterone is intimately, intimately involved in our hormonal balance and our experience as women. Um, testosterone has many, many functions in the body, but as it relates to metabolism and body composition, of course, it's it's involved in the maintenance and growth of our muscles, of our bones, of the, our bone density and bone turnover. Uh, it regulates body fat. It supports a healthy libido. That's what it's most famous for. You know, I often will talk about uh, testosterone peaking in week two of your cycle. So you can go back to my menstrual masterclass week two and listen to um, me talk about testosterone and how, you know, that's the week where I'm usually chasing my, you know, husband around the kitchen, <laughs> around the kitchen um, island because, you know, I'm, I am much more uh, excited about and interested in um, uh, sex that week as uh, we all are in, in week two, if our testosterone levels are normal. And of course, testosterone does a whole host of other things, supports, supports our heart health. It helps with our vitality. It helps with our confidence. It helps with our assertion. Uh, lots of, lots of things that it does. And one of the things that's important um, to understand it, with respect to testosterone is that it is often the case that when there is high testosterone, um, dysregulated testosterone, it is most often caused by something else. So it's not the testosterone itself. It's that there are other systemic problems that are driving this excess androgen. So when we think about what some of those reasons might be, uh, of course, it can stem from a multitude of places, including insulin resistance, like I mentioned. Um, it can also stem from estrogen and progesterone imbalances. Lack of exercise, specifically weight training, where we are not growing our muscle mass to be a better glucose disposal agent. Uh, excess weight, excess adiposity, of course, adipose tissue is, uh, we used to think that it was just kind of this annoying, you know, subcutaneous flabby stuff. It is an endocrine organ in and of itself. Uh, it also 
uh, has important modulators in the immune system. It also releases estrogens. Um, so excess weight can also muck up testosterone levels. Leptin resistance, which I talk about in the Betty body, but essentially uh, leptin resistance is um, the wonky signaling, if you will, from the adipose tissue uh, to some of the appetite regulation centers in the brain. Uh, leptin famously puts the fork down, right? And the opposite ghrelin tells us to pick the fork up. So if we have leptin resistance, it is very likely that we are consuming excess calories because this, this area, these appetite, these satiety centers in the brain are not receiving the leptin signal because there's a certain degree of resistance there. And then of course, prolonged stress, prolonged elevated cortisol secretion, like Everybody and everybody in the last 18 months, prolonged stress and cortisol secretion. So all this to say that test elevated testosterones or elevated androgens is never the, it's never that your testosterone just goes rogue and is like, F this, we're going to just cause, you know, we're just going to cause a, a, a big, um, you know, PCOS party here, but it is often the internal and external uh, environment that can drive uh, this derangement. And so PCOS is therefore both a metabolic disorder with some of its roots potentially in insulin resistance and stress, or um, just sort of discombobulated metabolic mayhem. So one of the things that I like to do in terms of qualifying uh, and quantifying really uh, PCOS is to look at labs. And I like to look at blood work and I like to look at something called the Dutch test. So blood work is going to give you uh, markers like free uh, testosterone and total testosterone. So total testosterone being the total amount that you have in your body. And then free testosterone is the T that is, or the testosterone that is free essentially, or unbound um, to a protein called sex hormone binding globulin. So sex hormone binding globulin or SHBG for short, uh, is a protein that binds your sex hormones. Uh, you might have inferred that from the name. Um, and once SHBG binds to testosterone, it does not exert, so testosterone now is bound. So it does not exert its effects on the local cells. So in my book, in the Betty Body, I likened it to um, what happens when, uh, or at least what happened when I, at least what happens to me when I go to New York City uh, and I kind of do damage to my credit card. And the way that I likened it in the book was I said, you know, sex hormone binding globulin is kind of like a taxi cab, right? It's a New York taxi cab. Um, maybe you are, uh, and in this example, you are the testosterone. So you're kind of in Soho, in Tribeca, you're kind of going up and down all those beautiful cobblestone uh, streets. And, at, you know, because you are able to kind of go in and out of shops, you of course are, have the opportunity as testosterone or the shopper in this example to exert, uh, some credit card damage or to exert testosterone's effect on the cell. However, uh, if you were in New York, you know, let's say you're in Soho and you say, okay, I got to get to Midtown. I'm going to, I'm meeting someone at 42nd street or meeting someone at 32nd street or whatever it is. Uh, you can get into that cab 
SHBG. I'm using air quotes. So you're the New York cab is SHBG. And now you are bound to that taxi. So you can no longer exert those effects on the shops <laughs> along the way. So that's kind of a way to think about what sex hormone binding globulin does. It basically inactivates um, testosterone. So testosterone is not able to exert its effects, its trophic effects um, on the, cell, the local cells there. And something that's really important to note is that insulin and SHBG have a very important relationship with each other. So the more insulin that you have, or let me, let me say it this way, there is an inverse relationship between insulin and sex hormone binding globulin. And there is a direct relationship between insulin and testosterone. So what do I mean by that? Well, an indirect relationship between, or inverse rather, relationship between insulin and sex hormone binding globulin means that as your insulin levels elevate, and you you might think about what are some of the conditions that make insulin levels elevate. Well, carbohydrates will uh, excess blood glucose will uh, elevate insulin. Your sex hormone binding globulin will attenuate. It will lower. So now you have less sex hormone binding globulin, meaning less testosterone can be bound to it. So you have more T. So there is a direct corollary between insulin levels and testosterone. As insulin goes up, testosterone, free testosterone will go up. As insulin goes up, sex hormone binding globulin goes down. Sodium is an essential nutrient involved in the maintenance of normal cellular balance, the regulation of fluid and electrolytes, and your blood pressure. Start your morning right with a refreshing salty tonic of LMNT. It's spring season now, which means I will be enjoying watermelon or grapefruit salt on ice, and it is a fabulous way to balance stress hormones and make sure that I am maximizing my muscle gains. LMNT also has a no questions asked refund policy. Try watermelon or any flavor that you want, and if you don't like it, they will refund your money no questions asked, and you don't even need to return the box. Head over to drinklmnt.com forward slash Dr. Estima. That's D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T.com forward slash D-R-E-S-T-I-M-A. And you will get a free LMNT sample pack with any purchase. So this is really... Uh... Uh, a really profound, very strong relationship. So if we are able then to modulate our insulin levels, then we will be able to, we will be able to predictably, uh, be able to modulate our free testosterone. So we want, if we are suspecting that you have excess testosterone, excess free testosterone, lowering your insulin levels is going to lower your free unbound T. And so just to give you some lab numbers here, um, a woman between the ages of uh, call it 20 and 50, she's not on the pill. She's not on any type of hormonal contraception. When we're doing lab work, she should have a free testosterone reading of anywhere between 0.3 to 0.8 nanograms per deciliter. And then total testosterone, which is the uh, addition of uh, free and bound T, should be somewhere between 15 to 70 nanograms uh, per deciliter. And so what are some other lab recommendations? Well, if I had, if I had someone uh, coming to me saying like, 
I feel like I have irregular cycles. I have this excess weight that I can't seem to uh, get rid of. I don't know where I am in my cycle. My cycle's all over the place. Uh, I am getting um, so, some of those chin hairs, that you know, hair uh, regression, like that ha- that male pattern baldness. Um, even that weight, that excess, like our bodies with too much testosterone start to look like men. So even when we start to deposit fat, we start to deposit fat, what we call it, um, an ectopic fat distribution. So through the, through the midsection, which is where we see men typically, um, put on weight, which is through the central, it's sort of the central uh, line obesity, which is of course much more detrimental for women because we, our normal fat distribution should be through our hips, our bums, um, and our thighs. So some other things I might want to explore with her. Uh, I'd, I'd also want to look at her estradiol levels and her progesterone levels. I would all, I would want to look at some of her glucose parameters. So, uh, fasting insulin, fasting glucose, HbA1c, these can all be done on lab. Uh, if you have a continuous glucose monitor or you are willing to do sort of finger prick testing, I would do a glucose, some glucose tolerance. So that might be, if any of you have ever um, had children uh, before, you may remember the test for gestational diabetes where they essentially gave you this disgusting 75 grams of like glucola (laughs) and watched your glucose over the next, you know, over a a certain Delta T it's usually about two hours. So what they're looking for is obviously there's going to be a spike in glucose after you consume it, but they're looking for there to be a rapid decline uh, in that glucose postprandially or po- post consumption of the glucola. Now you don't have to go in and have the, it's like this orange flavored grossness. Uh, you can actually just do it at home. If you have a CGM, uh, where you can take a carbohydrate bolus, like a very simple, sh- you can make a simple syrup, or you can just have like a carbohydrate bolus and watch postprandially. I actually like to do this in 30 minute intervals. So 30 minutes, post meal, an hour, post meal, 90 minutes, post meal, and then 120 minutes and see where the glucose levels are. So kind of looking at your you know, your, we'll call it your glucose integrity or glucose parameters. Of course, I mentioned androgens, total T, free T. Uh, I'd also want to look at endrocenodione, DHT and DHEA sulfate. A couple other things. uh, I'd want to look at your thyroid, like a full thyroid panel. So we've talked about thyroid on the podcast before. um, So make sure that we link to that show. It was a geeky magic I did on growth hormone and thyroid uh, hormone optimization. So what the full thyroid panel is, I detail it in, uh, in exquisite detail in that, in that episode with, with all the lab ranges, but we essentially want to look at TSH. We want to look at free T3. We want to look at free T4. We want to look at any, um, antibodies, um, that might be showing up. We want to look at reverse T3. Um, so go make sure that if you want the full thyroid panel with the ranges, make sure that you check out that, um, that podcast. I'd also want to look at vitamin D levels. And then just to kind of round it out, I'd also want to look at FSH and LH levels, sex hormone binding globulin, and potentially prolactin as well. Um, and ideally you'd want to do, um, the FSH and LH testing in the first, 
uh, day or two of your period. So like day one or two of your cycle, um, so that we can kind of look at the ratio as well between FSH and LH. All right. So we've talked about labs. We've talked about what it looks like. A lot of women go undiagnosed for many, many years, partly because they don't even realize that there's something wrong with them because they just have an N of one. They just know what their experience is like and not, they don't necessarily know that it's abnormal. So as a teenager, and this is for my moms with daughters, um, we might see, uh, a, a, a teenager with, with PCOS like tendencies, excess testosterone might look like acne. It might look like facial hair. It might look like irregular, um, periods. And this is, this is often, and this is where I would encourage you to go back and listen to my, another conversation I had with Nat Kringudis, because around the age of 16, 17, 18, a, a woman who's been menstruating at this point for a couple of years, she starts to look a little PCOS-y naturally. It's sort of the natural progression uh, in terms of our uh, in terms of our menstrual cycle. And this is often the time where she might go to her mom and say, "Listen, like my periods are irregular," and they might go to their their standard allopathic physician, who then, you know, gives them gets it walks out with a script for the birth control pill. I have many thoughts on the birth control pill. I think that informed consent is really important here. So again, uh, listening to my conversation with Nat Kringudis would be great. Uh, Dr. Jolene Brighton on the pod has been, we did a two-parter with Jolene last year uh, on the pill and some of the um, undesired side effects like depression, um, activation of pro-inflammatory pathways, altered lipid uh, metabolism, altered cholesterol metabolism, uh, depletion of CoQ10, infertility, all the things. So again, another link will be in the show notes for you. Lots of, lots of backup stuff for you. If you, if you're really, uh, if you're a super nerd, a uh, super Betty nerd, as I am, I'm giving you all the resources if you want to go further, but as a teenager, that's what excess testosterone might look like. And then as she grows up into her reproductive years, into her twenties, uh, into her thirties, PCOS can show up like infertility. It can show up as preeclampsia and gestational diabetes. And of course, this leaves her primed and vulnerable in menopause for diabetes, for heart disease, for cancer, for stroke, all the things. So, um, just to, to give, to color in a little bit of some of the clinical picture, because it's not, it's not spoken about enough. And just to, um, just as a further layer of coloring, PCOS often coincides with obesity. It's not a necessary requirement, um, but it's often the case about one in three women who are obese also have PCOS. Um, about one in 20 women who are not classified as obese, who are not obese will also have PCOS. And, you know, as I've sort of been mentioning, um, obesity's best friend is insulin dysregulation. So if you are overweight, meaning that you have a BMI that is too high, chances are that your insulin levels might also be chronically higher, which will then in inevitably increase testosterone, perpetuating this sort of vicious cycle. So I've mentioned now lab work, I've mentioned what, what it clinically, um, might look like. Um, of course there are some, um, 
genetic predispositions in terms of like how quickly we uh, aromatase, uh, how, there's certain genes that may work more quickly or less quickly. But I am really of the opinion that genes are not your destiny. Uh, they are, our genetics are very much influenced by our environment and our lifestyle. And so when we think about um, the standard American diet, which is very much a diet high in refined carbohydrates, um, which is often something that we pick up from our upbringing in, in our culture, right? Especially now, uh, it's very easy to click on Uber Eats. It's very easy to get prepackaged foods at the grocery store. This is a refined carbohydrates is a much larger root cause and much larger predictor than our genetics are. And it's something that you can completely um, control. So what are some of the things that we can do? So I've been kind of talking to you a little bit about um, what are some of the clinical pictures uh, of PCOS or excess uh, testosterones uh, or androgens. What are some things that you might consider um, in order to help reverse this? Well, I've already mentioned a few things, right? If we have our roots, uh, if, if part of the root of uh, PCOS is in insulin dysregulation, then the, one of the first steps here is improving our nutrition. So improving our insulin, the glue, I like to call it like that glucose insulin dance. And so that is going to come from reducing, maybe it's temporarily, or maybe it's over a longer Delta. Uh, it's going to be reducing refined carbohydrates. So particularly the chips, the cookies, the crackers, the processed foods, the protein bars and the keto bars. I know that that comes as a bit of a blow, uh, but lots of carbohydrates and lots of emulsifiers, lots of sort of dysregulated like stuff in processed foods. So we want to be trying to move as much as we can to a whole food diet. I am biased in my clinical practice because I've seen so much great evidence for the Estima diet and PCOS. This is one particular uh, population that responds absolutely beautifully to the Estima diet. So you can, I'll have a link in the show notes if you want to take a look at the Estima diet, what it entails, but it is essentially a ketogenic diet that is formulated for women so that we can support um, giving you enough fats, giving you appropriate amounts of proteins and changing your carbohydrate sources to whole foods. So vegetables and fruits, uh, things with lots of fiber to help with the microbiome. So when, when we are able to bring down insulin, if you recall, I was talking about insulin has an inverse relationship with SHBG and a direct corollary relationship with testosterone. So once insulin comes down, SHBG is going to be, it's going to elevate. And then we're going to see a reduction in uh, overall free and unbound T. So that means that you are able to exert less, that testosterone is able to exert less damage uh, on the cells that it's available to. Very similarly to if you are walking in Soho and you're popping into every single store and you're seeing something cute and you're buying everything, doing lots of damage to your credit card <laughs> to kind of pull back that, uh, that example. So getting your nutrition right uh, to help with insulin dysregulation. One of the other things I have to mention in terms of insulin uh, insensitivity is muscle mass. So where we often see insulin 
uh, resistance or insulin insensitivity, where we see it first is usually in the muscle. And so resistance training is alongside your diet is probably the single most important thing that you can do. And this causes a little bit of confusion for, and I've had this question a couple of times, cause I'll have women that will message me and say, Hey, you, you've talked about how increasing your muscle mass is going to increase your testosterone. Wouldn't that be really bad for a woman with PCOS who already has this elevated androgen? And it's a, it's a good line of thinking. Like it's, it's a, you know, you've done, you're thinking in terms of a scientist. So I want to really applaud that line of thinking, but it's not the entire picture because what we know about insulin resistance is that it first happens in the muscle, in the myocyte. And there's been some really awesome research um, from uh, Dr. Uh, Gerald Schulman, I believe is his last name, uh, talking about one bout, one bout of resistance training can almost completely reverse the insulin resistance that we see in the muscle. So really important, you can see directionally, if now you are training three times or four times a week, how you can be continuing to improve your insulin resistance. Because as you, as that muscle grows after you know, several months, several years of being consistent with your training, then also your muscles are like a sponge. They are functional active tissue. They need substrate because it is much more active than let's say our, our, our adipocytes, our, our fat cells. So your muscles are going to be sopping up that plasma, that blood glucose much faster, um, uh, then if you had, you know, if you, if you compared that to a body composition with less muscle mass, so always more muscle mass is important to be an efficient glucose disposal agent. And yes, it's true that you will have more, you know, having more muscle will directionally increase your testosterone, but because we are fixing um, and improving your insulin resistance vis-a-vis resistance training, that testosterone, that increase in testosterone is not going to be negatively affecting a woman with PCOS. So those are like the number one, number two things that we can do from a lifestyle perspective. I also think that it's worth mentioning, even though, uh, you know, at this point, I think we've all heard this, but helping to reduce your stress. You know, if you are walking around like a ball of stress and, you know, I, I, you know, through, with the spirit of honesty and transparency, sometimes I'm a ball of stress too. Uh, it really does affect your insulin levels. It really does dysregulate, uh, that glucose insulin dance. Cortisol is always fighting, 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 fighting to keep that blood glucose where it is and to not allow it to be cleared into the cell, which is what insulin's job is. And so when you have that over the course of time, you will just get this absolutely dysregulated, um, uh, insulin insensitivity under the influence of, uh, elevated cortisol. So, you know, I, I like to tell my Bettys inside my hello Betty membership, hydrate, meditate, and masturbate and repeat. <laughs> so if there is, if there is a, if there is a key, if there is a master key plan to life, I would say that those three things I actually want to make that on, to, on a t-shirt. If, uh, and let me know if you, if you leave a review, um, or a comment anywhere, uh, if that's a t-shirt that you would wear, if you would wear a t-shirt that says, uh, hydrate, 
meditate, masturbate. Because honestly, those three things, when you are hydrated, this sends a signal of safety, right? Your brain and our bodies are very sensitive to dehydration signals. It causes a stress signal in the body. And I also should say water is anabolic as well. When your cells are nice and juicy and puffed up versus like shrink, you know, shrinked and wrinkled and all of that. So we want to be plumped up and hydrated. We want to be meditating because we know that that is going to also bring us into a parasympathetic state. It moves us from brain center. It moves us from sort of a lower brain center to a higher brain center where we can activate gratitude. And of course, the first piece of being great is to be in gratitude. And then of course, uh, masturbate, <laughs> which is, as you might expect, feels really great, really good for balancing your hormones, also reduces your stress level, lots of oxytocin, uh, follows an orgasm. Again, another anabolic hormone, oxytocin is anabolic. Uh, so we want to be in that growth and abundance and expansion. So those are like my one, two, three tips uh, that I would say for any woman, but particularly a woman who might be suspecting that she's suffering from excess androgens, for her to be reducing her carbohydrates, for her to be resistance training, and then for her to be reducing her chronic stress. And I know that it's a little late. This was PCOS Awareness Month, but I, I got it in right towards the end of uh, right towards the end of the month, so you can get some of the information that you need to make better decisions about your life and your health. And I will leave it off here by bidding you adieu, and we will see you next week. Uh, looking forward to geeking out with you then. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's geeky magic carpet ride with me visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. 